welcome to the Lent Discipleship School this week um, via the website. I am so sorry that we haven't been able to meet as a church um, properly together, but it's amazing that we can do this online. So if you were at the Lent Discipleship School last week, you will have heard Jago speaking on the subject of Is God Anti-Freedom? And tonight we are looking at the subject of Is God Anti-Women? Or Is Christianity Anti-Women? We're going to do this. What I would love you to do is to grab a Bible or to have your phone ready so that you can look up a couple of passages as we go through the talk. And also, we are going to have some questions through the talk. So if you're with a group of people or if you're on your own, when those questions come up, um, press pause. And then you can just take a moment to discuss with others if you're with others or have a think about the question on your own before then continuing with the talk. I also just want to put out some disclaimers. Um, I may be a woman, I may be ordained, but I'm not an expert in this subject. Um, So forgive me if some of the things I say um, aren't sort of perfectly formed. Also within this, it's important to remember that within God's creation, there is an element of mystery in his creation of humankind and his creation of man and woman. There are some aspects to it where we cannot fully put language to God's creation, to God's intention. And so within this talk, we have to leave room for that mystery. Our starting point tonight is crucial. Um, As you sit there, lots of us will have different perceptions of what the answer to this question is. We will have different experiences of how society or how the church has treated women in the past, maybe through history or maybe personal to you. With all of these things that we come to the table with, um, my request to you tonight is to try and park that, to put those things to one side. Because what I want to do tonight is to sort of draw a baseline or a framework of what the Bible says about women and that that is our reference point. So we're going to start by looking at the creation story and looking at Genesis. So I would love you to grab your Bibles and to look up Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 and verses 15 to 25. And if you can read those and then think about the question briefly, what do you think this creation account says about the status of women versus men? So pause the video now. We are probably all very familiar with this story of Genesis, with the creation story. But whether we're aware of it or not, often we have a subconscious narrative of this story that is completely incorrect. It has been lived out through society and through the church in the past, and it often forms our framework. And it goes like this. This is how we hear the story. After God created the world, he created man. He created man first, and man is directly made in the image of God. Therefore, man must be at the very pinnacle of God's creation. A bit later on, God notices that man is lonely. 
And so he creates woman. He takes a rib from the man's body and he creates woman. And therefore woman isn't made in the image of God in the same way that man is because she comes from Adam. She is made in the image of God to a lesser degree than Adam is. Also, she's made to be man's helper. She's given an inferior role, an inferior status. She is inferior to man. So we hear these two myths. One, that woman isn't made in the image of God in the same way that man is. And two, that woman is inferior to man because she is only given the role as helper. That's how so often society plays out the roles of man and woman, the status of man and woman. And you've seen it in society, you probably have experienced it. We often see it in households, we see it in marriages. That's what tradition tells us. Here is the true story of the, this true version of this story. Myth one, that man is created more in the image of God than woman. Look at Genesis chapter one, verse 27. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It says very clearly here that both man and woman are made in the image of God. Not one of them to a lesser degree. Both of them completely and fully made in the image of God. It's remarkably easy to dispel this first myth. And yet society forgets that that's what it says. The church forgets that that's what it says. So woman is made in the image of God just like man is. Then the second myth, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, The Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. When we hear this word helper, we think of someone who is less, someone who's an assistant, a sous chef, someone who doesn't have the main role, but has come in under the other person in order to assist them in what they are doing. We hear this word helper entirely in the wrong way. That is not what this word means in this instance. The word helper in Hebrew is azer, and it is, comes up in the, New Test, in the Old Testament 21 times. 16 of those times, this word is used in direct reference to God, to God being the helper of Israel, the helper of humankind. Some verses might just pop up. Exodus in chapter 18, Deuteronomy chapter 33, in Psalm 20. These are all examples of when this word helper is used about God himself. He is the helper. And this completely changes how we perceive the word helper. We think of God as being someone who is up here, who comes to help mankind who is in desperate need. Without exception, every time this word helper is used in the Old Testament, it refers to a vital, powerful kind of help. A help coming in life-threatening situations. And twice it is used in reference to women. It is not a lesser role. It is not an inferior role. 
God sees man. He sees that man is alone. And he says he needs woman. He needs this vital, this powerful help to come alongside man. And that completely changes our reference point of what a woman's role is, what she was called to do. So we dispel the myth that she had a lesser role. And this gives us a little hint of this beautiful dynamic that God intended when he created man and woman. He intended them both to be made in the image of God, but to be different and therefore to reflect different aspects of God's nature, of who God is. So we have man and woman, they are different, and yet at the same time completely equal to one another. But God's design doesn't finish there. There's a much deeper intention going on in the creation of man and woman. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but actually we have this sort of subconscious expectation or assumption that when God created the world, that if he wanted humankind to be able to fill the earth, which is one of the commands that he gives to Adam and Eve, to procreate, to have children, that they had to be man and woman. But actually, God is above science. He's above creation. He could have created beings in any way, shape, or form that he wanted to. He could have created genderless beings who could have children on their own as individuals if he had wanted to. But we see that actually there is an aspect of when God had just created man, not reflected. It says that man was alone, that he was lonely. When God talks about the creation, he says it's good. When he talks about the creation of man, he says it's very good. When he looks at man and sees that man is alone, he said it's not good. He sees this solitary man and he realizes that a key aspect of God's image being reflected in humankind is relationship because God is intrinsically relational. His very nature is relational. And so he creates woman. And he creates these two beings that are different from one another and yet intrinsically linked because one is taken from the other, the rib taken to create the woman. And as they relate in order to create children, he creates within them this reflection of this relationship this intimacy that we can have with God. So it was completely intentional that God chose to create man and woman, that he chose to create them differently and that he chose them to create them in a way that when they relate to one another, an even deeper aspect of God's character is reflected. So there's this diagram here that you'll see and it shows of what it looked like when it was just man and God. And there's a sort of a one-dimensional aspect to it. There is an aspect of God reflected, but not all of God is reflected. But then, if you look at the next diagram, you see this, this triangle created. And here you have something completely different. And this is what I mean by being a mystery, because it's hard to put language to it. But what you have is you have man and woman, and in their differences, they reflect God. 
and yet as they then relate to one another, they reflect this incredible relationship. They reflect this metaphor that they were designed for, to point to this longing God for intimacy and for relationship with us. Um, Some of the reading that I have done has been um, by in a book called Confronting Christianity by a woman called Rebecca McLaughlin. And she puts it like this. She says, The God who exists in utter intimacy, with love across difference at the core of his being, creates image bearers who are of the same essence but different and calls them into one flesh intimacy. Now, it might seem like this is a sort of exclusive metaphor that we're dealing with here because it requires basically marriage. But the key with this, again, is that it's not to point to marriage. It's not to point to how men and women relate in that way. The whole point of it is it's a metaphor. It's pointing to something so much bigger, so much greater. The overall underlying intention of God, which is to have relationship with us. So this is our baseline that we have from Genesis, that man and woman, they are created equal. They are created in the image of God, and yet they are different intentionally. And through their differences, they relate to one another in this intimacy that reflects the relationship we can have with God. Then, of course, we know in Genesis 3, it all falls apart The relationship with God is broken and man and woman's relationship with one another is broken. Which is why today what we see is so far from what God intended. I'm not going to look at the fall in detail and I'm not actually going to look at the Old Testament in detail. But the main thing to take from this is that when you look through the Old Testament, quite often people say, well, the way that the women are treated in the Old Testament affirms the fact that women were lesser and that it's okay to abuse them. But what you have to do when you read the Old Testament is you have to pick apart what is narrative, what is actually the story of the fall, and then this working itself out, the problems that are caused by the fall that are told through story. And what is didactic? What is being taught? What are we actually being told we should think of women? And actually, as you look through the Old Testament, there are these high points where women play a role that is completely different to the society around them and what would have been expected of them. You have prophetesses like Miriam. You have Queen Esther. You have Deborah, a female judge. They are people that people look to to hear from God, that people look to for direction, for advice. What I want to do now is to turn to the New Testament and to look at what the New Testament says about women. And we're going to start with Jesus and women. The portrayal the whole way through the Gospels with Jesus is of this stunningly counter-cultural relationship that he has with women and view that he has of women. There are lots of parables, lots of stories, lots of encounters where when you look at them closely, the way that Jesus relates to women is astounding. And I want to look briefly at one of the the biggest examples of this. So we're going to, again, we're going to pause in a minute, grab your Bibles, and we're going to look at John chapter 4, verses 3 to 27. So I'd love you to have a read of that, and then we will come back. So press pause now. 
So in this passage, um, you are probably very familiar with it. Jesus does so many countercultural things. Um, there's a map that will come up. And I'm just going to pull out two of the countercultural things that he does, all linked to women. One of the things that Jesus does is he very clearly, intentionally goes to meet with this woman. If you look on this map, there's a curved route and a direct route. It tells us that Jesus is going from Jerusalem to Galilee. And most Jews, in fact every Jew, the route they would have taken is the curved route so that they could avoid Samaria. You have probably heard this before. Jews never ever wanted to be associated or in the presence of Samaritans. So they would take this route. And yet we are told in verse 4 that now he had to go through Samaria. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, he didn't have to go through Samaria. He could have taken the indirect route. This verse implies that there was an intention as to why Jesus went through Samaria. And I'm pretty sure it was because he was planning to go to Sychar to meet with this woman. And here he comes and he does this countercultural thing where he sits down with a woman alone. She's a Samaritan, so he shouldn't have been with her anyway. She's living in a life of sin, so he shouldn't probably have been with her anyway. But the most countercultural thing he does is he's sitting with a woman alone, which was completely unprecedented. And yet in this moment, Jesus gives all of himself to her. He holds nothing back. Yes, he convicts her of her sin, and the life that she is living. But then he tells her that that she can have the living water, that he can save her. The key thing with this passage is Jesus could have done this in a different context. He could have told this woman about this living water, that he is the saviour, in a group context, with the disciples there, or in a crowd And yet he seems to so intentionally take himself to a place when the disciples have gone to go and get food so that he can be alone with her, so that he can tell her personally this salvation that he offers. He is so affirming of this woman that she is just as important as anybody else. He holds nothing back from her. And it gives us this glimpse into Jesus' view of women, that he didn't even question whether it was okay to be in the presence of this woman, whether it was okay to tell her that she too can have this living water. And you'll see that as you go through the Gospels. Again and again, this is how Jesus is with women. But for me, the elephant in the room with the Gospels and with Jesus is always this issue of the 12 disciples. And so I want you just to press pause and I would love you to ask the question, why do you think that all of Jesus's 12 disciples were male? So often the argument of Jesus choosing only men to be his 12 disciples is used to say that therefore women cannot be in ministry. 
that women cannot be leaders. But I find this argument quite amusing because actually if you follow it through to its end, you don't end up at a conclusion that you would expect. If you're going to say that women cannot be in leadership, that they couldn't be disciples or they couldn't be in church leadership because they are women, then you're also saying, well, actually all the men, none of them were Gentiles. So therefore, no Gentiles can be in church leadership. So only men and only Jews can be in church leadership. So what you end up with is saying only Jewish men can be in church leadership, which is clearly not true. So why are all of the disciples men, the 12 disciples? And there's two reasons for this. One, it's to do with the timing of Jesus's ministry. And two, it's to do with the strategy of Jesus's ministry. The timing of Jesus's ministry comes and his call of the 12 disciples comes at this juncture between the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, which existed purely for Israel, for the salvation of Israel, and the New Covenant, which is when salvation is opened out to everyone. But this hasn't happened yet. So when Jesus begins his ministry, his ministry is still first for Israel. He's a Jew, he comes as a rabbi, and so he picks these 12 disciples. And it's this continuation of what has been going in, on in the Old Testament of salvation for Israel. And if you think about it, the 12 disciples, what they're doing is they symbolically mirror the 12 tribes of Israel. When Jesus begins his ministry, he doesn't cut off what's gone on in the Old Testament. He doesn't cut off the story of Israel. He continues it. And we know that he continues it through to the new covenant, through to this opening up of salvation to everyone. But at this juncture, he's still in the story of Israel. So that's partly why he chooses men, Jewish men, to be his disciples, because he's continuing the story of Israel. And linked to that is this strategy of his ministry. Jesus' ministry is still placed within the context of Israel. So he comes as a rabbi, as a teacher within Judaism. And to be counted as a rabbi, you had to have at least 10 male disciples. Otherwise, you weren't classed as a rabbi. And therefore, Jesus has to choose 10 male disciples in order for his ministry to work in that way. If he had chosen women, his, his ministry wouldn't have got off the ground as a rabbi. And interestingly, there's this confirmation again that he doesn't choose 10 disciples, he chooses 12 to mirror back to the 12 tribes of Israel. So what you have is two very plausible reasons as to why Jesus chose men to be his disciples. But neither of them suggest that he thought less of women or that women couldn't be disciples or couldn't be followers of Jesus or in any form of leadership. And the good news is that actually when you look through the Gospels, what you see is that there were actually women disciples. They just weren't the 12 that we see listed. So we're going to look at a couple of examples. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. I'm just going to read the beginning of this chapter. It says, After this, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. 
The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. This passage, it is so easy to skip over the absolutely key aspect of the passage. It's quite easy to focus on these women who are financially providing for the disciples and for Jesus, which, to be fair, is in itself very countercultural that that was happening. But actually, the key aspect of this verse is where it says, were with, that the 12 were with Jesus and some women. And actually, a better way for it to read would be that the 12 and the women were with Jesus. The very essence of discipleship was to be with your teacher, to be with your rabbi. The idea is that you would literally follow your rabbi and you would learn from him as you went about with him. This verse tells us that they are moving from different towns to different villages. And everywhere Jesus goes, these 12 disciples and these women are with him. And therefore, there is this suggestion that these women are actually acting in the same role as disciples, as the 12 disciples. That they are being affirmed as disciples, that they are learning from Jesus, just as the 12 disciples were learning from Jesus. Then if you skip to Luke 10, there's the story of Mary and Martha. And now you'll know this story well. Jesus goes to visit these two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Martha is assuming the traditional role of a Jewish woman. She is looking after her guests. She's preparing food. She's busy. She's doing work. Mary, on the other hand, is sitting at Jesus's feet. So Martha comes to Jesus and she's all of a fluster. And and she says, you know, help me. You should tell Mary to come and help me do her work, do what she should be doing. And Jesus, you can imagine him doing this with a smile. He looks at Martha and he says, you are worried about many things. And then he affirms what Mary is doing. He says, but Mary has chosen the best thing. What has Mary chosen? When we read this, we read, oh, so Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's sitting with the other disciples. And this image can be conjured up of, oh, they're sitting in the living room and they're having their drinks and they're eating crisps and they're waiting for Martha to tell them that the food is ready. That's not what this means. This posture of sitting at the feet of Jesus, sitting at the feet of the rabbi, is that role of a disciple. When, when disciples were learning from Jesus, they would sit at the feet. When a disciple is learning from a rabbi, that's the position they would assume. So she is assuming the traditional role of a disciple, this traditional position of a disciple, as she sits at Jesus' feet. And Jesus affirms this. He says she is doing the good thing. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Essentially, he says, yes, she is also a disciple. Same as the 12 disciples. So here we have this kind of affirmation of women in exactly the same role, in exactly the same position as the other disciples. 
And then as you look through the gospel, you see that women are also chosen to be these historic witnesses, to play these poignant roles within the story of the gospel. The most obvious one, of course, is Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's the only one to witness the Annunciation. She's the only one directly involved in the incarnation. Then if you skip forward to Jesus' death on the cross, the Gospels tell us that all of the disciples except for John, all of the male disciples, deserted Jesus. And the women were left. It's the women that see Jesus die on the cross. It's the women that hear those last words that he utters on the cross. It's their account it's only because of them that we know what Jesus said. My favourite is in Luke 24, in John's Gospel, sorry, where it talks about Mary Magdalene. And she goes to the tomb and she goes to find Jesus' body and he's not there. And instead she has this encounter with who she thinks is the gardener, but actually it's Jesus. And two astounding things happen. Firstly, she is the first person to encounter the risen Jesus. Essentially, she's the first apostle. And then she calls out to him and she says, Rabuni. She says, my teacher. She literally calls him the name of someone who is a disciple of, him, of his. And then she is told to go and tell the rest of the disciples. In the other gospels, it's, it's three women who encounter angels, who tell them that Jesus is risen. The word of women was perceived as having far less value than of men at the time of Jesus. Their, their word wouldn't hold up in court. And yet they are the ones that witness the critical events of the story of Jesus, of the gospel story. It is because of them that we have these accounts. And to me, that is an affirmation of the fact that women are just as much a part of this story as men are, and just as much a part of telling this story to others. Now, at this point, it can feel like this is the high point of women in the Bible. Jesus and women, there's no doubt that he was for them, that they had equal status with men. I came across this picture the other day and it can look like after this it goes a bit downhill. It says, so ladies, thanks for being the first to witness and report the resurrection and we'll take it from here. Sometimes when we read Paul's account and when we read the instructions that he often seems to give to women, it can feel like he tramples over everything that Jesus has said and done. I could have spent the next sort of 10 minutes going through all the different things that, that Paul says, but I don't actually think that that's the best way. So what I have done is chosen one passage that I think can often be the most contentious when it comes to the status of women. So again, I would love you to grab your Bibles and open them to Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 31. And there's two questions I would love you to ask. What is your interpretation of what these instructions say about a woman's status within marriage? 
And then does this interpretation have wider implications for the status of women? So press pause. This passage has often been misinterpreted. At worst, people have used it to give permission to husbands to abuse their wives physically or emotionally or both. And at best, it's often misinterpreted to imply a hierarchy that is completely at odds with God's intention. To imply a hierarchy where the man has full authority and can do and say what he wants and the woman just has to follow these traditional roles that we see within families, within marriages. There's a stamp of what society has assumed these verses mean that isn't what God meant and isn't what Paul meant. These verses have to be read in the context of the whole of Ephesians. What Paul is doing in the letter of Ephesians is astounding. He literally is saying that in this, we have this new reality in Christ because of the cross and resurrection Everything has changed. And he's basically, he's rewriting what society can now look like because of being in Christ. And this includes households and it includes marriages. And he says we have this new alternative reality in Christ where we are united as one in Christ, where we are under Christ. He has authority over us. And where through that, through the power of the cross and resurrection, Everything that we do is to be centered on the other, is to be a love that is other-centered. You see this in um, the verse 21 that you read in chapter 5, that we are to mutually submit to one another, that we all come forgiven by Christ, in Christ, these new beings, and we are called to now live that out by loving one another. And marriage falls into this context So marriage is not for the self, it's not to be self-serving, but it is to be another aspect of society that points to the love and sacrifice of Christ, that points to this relationship that Christ has with his church. So let's look at the husband. The husband is told to love his wife like Christ loved the church. This could sound, and it does to me if I don't think about it carefully, like the husband is being put on the same position as Jesus, the same status. One, that's ridiculous. We are all down here in the face of Jesus. And two, this passage is nothing about status. It's nothing about hierarchy. It is all about different expressions of love that mirror Christ and the church. So look at what Christ is asked to do for the church, which the husband is then asked to mirror. In Ephesians 1, it tells us that Christ is made head of the church, that everything is under him. So he is given authority over the church. But this is an authority completely different to any other authority you've ever known. It's not authority that dominates. It's not an authority that controls It's an authority that then serves and sacrifices in love. Jesus is called to love the church. He is called to look after the church. He is called to bless the church. And so what does he do? What does his love 
take him to? It takes him to the cross. He literally lays down his life for the sake of the church in order to bless the church, in order to free the church. It is all for the sake of the church. So when the husband in verse 25 is told that he has authority over his wife, that he's called to love his wife as Christ loved the church, he is not being given authority that my word goes, I'm in control, I get to dominate, you just have to follow along behind me. He has been called to one of the hardest things one could ever do or live out. He has been called to literally love his wife so much that he would die for her. He has been called to love his wife so much that he would go lower than his wife, that he, like Christ, would go to the depths in order to lift up his wife, just as Jesus lifted up the church. When you look at the verses in this context, you realize it's nothing about status and it is not an authority that gives power. It is an authority that calls for love and it's self-sacrificial love to the very extreme. So then when you look at the wife and you look at verses 25, where sorry, verses 22 to 24, where the wife is called to submit. What is she being asked to submit to? Not an authoritarian husband. She's being asked to respect, to accept, to submit to the way of her husband. What is the way of her husband? A way that is so other-centered that it can only be a blessing to her. This is how she is called to love the husband. In some ways, when you look at it like that, you could say the husband's got the rougher deal. Ephesians 5 calls man and wife, husband and wife, to love one another in a way that is only possible because of what Christ has done for us. Only possible if we are in Christ. And only possible if first and foremost, we have all submitted to Christ and to one another. Again, Rebecca McLaughlin, she puts it like this. She says, this is the lens through which to look at these verses. If the message of Jesus is true, then no one comes to the table with rights. The only way to enter is flat on your face. Male or female, if we grasp at our right to self-determination, we must reject Jesus because he calls us to submit to him completely. When Paul writes about marriage, it's not because marriage is the most important thing or because he's saying, oh, this is how you can get, you know, the best for yourself. His whole vision in Ephesians is that all these aspects of society, including marriage, point to this incredible relationship of Christ and his church. And the intimacy of marriage is one of the closest representations because it has this intimacy of love that Christ has for the church. Marriage never was created to exist for the sake of itself. It was created to be a blessing in society. And it's only when man and woman are seen as equal, but with these different roles of how to love one another, that we begin to see what God's intention was. And you'll find that it almost mirrors what we saw in Genesis. This vision of two people who are different 
are called to different things, reflect God in a different way. And yet when they are perfectly united, reflect this incredible intimacy and relationship with God. I'm not going to say much more about Paul, but one of the other things that I would go into or I would look at later if I were you is this idea of Paul and women and and them in leadership. If you look at the end of Romans, you will see a list of nine women who Paul lists as his ministry partners, who Paul says were in leadership with him. And it's this affirmation of the fact that even within Paul's ministry, actually there were women who were going and serving and leading and telling the gospel to people. What I want to finish with tonight is um, to go full circle back to where we were in the creation story. And I came across this image um, by Rembrandt, you will probably know it, of the prodigal son. And if you look at this picture, to me, um, there is something in this picture that reflects God's intention when he created man and woman. If you look up the close-up picture, you have God the Father embracing the prodigal son when he has returned. And someone was pointing out to me the other day, if you look at his hands, they are different. One hand is very obviously masculine. It's, it's a bit bigger, the fingers are a bit chunkier, it's a bit rougher. And even the grip on the sun looks a bit firmer. Then if you look at the other hand, it's clearly a very feminine hand. The fingers are more delicate. They're, it's a much gentler hand. There's a gentler touch on the shoulder of the sun. To me, these different hands sort of is what God wanted to reflect in the difference of men and women. They're equal, they're just as needed as the other, but in their difference, they reflect different aspects of God's character, of God's nature, of who God is. And to me, that's where the beauty lies in God's intention. The world today would advocate for total equality between men and women, almost as though that's a new thing. Actually, that's what the Bible advocates for. And yet the world's way of trying to reach this equality is by trying to remove all difference from men and women. To say we are all exactly the same as one another. We are carbon copies. We are interchangeable. But actually, to me, that is to lose one of the most special aspects of God's creation, and that is difference. That actually... Difference is needed, it's required, and it's where the beauty lies. To make us carbon copies of one another wasn't God's intention. Otherwise, he would have done that from the beginning. And you can see it in the rest of God's creation. You only have to hear people sing in harmony to hear the beauty that comes with those different tones. Or to look at creation and see that actually you'll never find uniformity in the colour of the leaves of the trees. In fact, you'll rarely ever find a straight line in nature. We were not created to be carbon copies of one another. We were created to be equal, but equal and different at the same time. So how does this play itself out? 
to me, in leadership in the church, the answer would be, well, we need both. We need both man and woman. When God saw that man was alone, he said it was not good. He created woman to be his helper, to be this vital, needed, powerful help. To me, church ministry is at its best when men and women come together, when we do ministry together, because that is when God is fully reflected in his glory. We don't do it independently. We don't do it on our own. We do it in teams. We do it in partnerships, sometimes through marriage, sometimes through working relationships. It's when we do it together with that equality and yet that difference that God's glory is reflected, that God's image is reflected in the church as he intended. So we're going to finish there and I'm just going to finish with a quick prayer. Father, we thank you um, for your creation. We thank you for the beauty of your creation. And Lord, I pray that as we think on these things, Lord, that more than anything that we are left with this intention of yours to create this beautiful creation, to create man and woman who perfectly and beautifully both reflect your image. In your name, amen.